worship leader or leaders like, like the band here behind me today, the Schultz family. But next week, uh, there'll be a guest uh, speaker, preacher, and that's Brett Avlakiotis from Spring Hills. Brett and I are actually doing a pulpit swap next weekend. So he's going to probably wear shorts, probably go golfing after or something, and come out here and preach to you. And I'll be at Spring Hills, where, of course, we met uh, prior to being back here to the Grove. I will be there uh, preaching and speaking at their services next week. And so just letting you know about that, that's kind of fun to do that. And um, my joy to be asked to speak there. And it was great when uh, he uh, said he was available to come out and speak here. So that's coming up uh, next week. Um, And then I already mentioned the baptisms today, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. And I know we're all excited about that. We're excited for Panera. We're excited for the pool. So we better get to work, or I better get to work, I guess. Um, I was tempted, though, to say to Glenn and the band, just keep singing, you know. Um, But uh, if you haven't yet, open your Bible or swipe on your device. We keep, you know, like Glenn joked, you know, it's okay to use phones in church these days. Um, as long as you're not tweeting and checking your statuses and any of that stuff. Uh, Titus chapter 2. And we're going to actually skip over the first 10 verses. We will return there, Lord willing. And I'll explain why here in a moment. But Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We are in a short-ish, short-ish series in this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus was Paul's representative on the island of Crete. Those Cretans are liars and gluttons like we talked about last week. Um, They're really not anymore, but that's our text from last week, and so I keep joking. Someone, in fact, sent me a nice flowery scripture, you know, like verse, and uh, I didn't have a chance to read it initially. I just thought they were sending me an encouraging verse, you know, like little, like art, and then as I look closely, and it was that verse from Titus 1 about Cretans always being gluttons and liars and filthy animals. And so that's kind of become a joke um, around my house these days. Anytime something goes wrong, I say, ah, Cretans. So no offense if you're from Crete in real life. So Paul sent this letter to Titus. He was on Crete. And as we looked at last week and the week before, the main concern in Paul's mind was some false teachers on this island. So he writes what's relatively a short letter, three chapters for us, to Titus to encourage him to deal with these false teachers. Um, and that's what we saw last week. But, but as we've noted, and I'll keep saying this each time, even though he addresses false teachers specifically, in doing that, he's going to talk about other things which really allow for him to communicate and to expand on things that serve to build a healthy church. That's really what he wanted for those churches on the island. And as we have God's word to us today, and as this letter is for us as well, not to us. Of course, it was to Titus for those churches then, but, but there's still an application to us these years later. It's for us. And so this little letter serves to help us build and be a healthy church. I know I want this, I pray this, and I believe many of you do as well. So with that, follow along as I read Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify 
for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some of you may have had an epiphany, although I kind of gave it away uh, when I said we were going to start at verse 11. And you're saying, wait a minute, we were in chapter 1 last week. What about these, these 10 verses? Well, I said that we we're going to skip them and, Lord willing, come back to them uh, down the road. Here's, here's a real short answer why uh, we're skipping them today. We have this baptism planned for after the service and as I was looking at the passages, uh, verses 1 to 10, they're important and they have a lot of things to say to God's people, but there's not an easy connection to baptism. So I would have felt like I had to deal with all of that, and there's a lot there, and then get us all set up for baptism. And it's been a while since we've had a baptism, and I want us all to be refreshed on the, the amazing nature of, of baptism. And so as I looked ahead, verses 11 through 15 actually are a perfect transition passage into baptism, which is a good work. And we'll get there at the end of our text today. So that is why we will return, Lord willing, after my sabbatical to verses 1 to 10. But for now, we are going to start at verses 11 to 15. And this passage, church, is amazing. It, it truly is amazing. Think for a moment right now about something in your life that's amazing. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's, it's being out under God's creation on a day like today, Memorial Day weekend, the start of summer, unofficial start of summer, getting to, to be like this in this context. What, what is amazing or, or astonishing or stunning or staggering to you? Some of you might know the name Chuck Swindoll. Raise your hand if you remember that name. He was a pastor for a lot of years in Southern California. He's on the radio, I think, still. I remember when I was at Biola as a college student, uh, the church Chuck Swindoll pastored wasn't far from Biola, so that's a location a lot of the college students went to. And I remember one time in the 90s, and I keep saying that because we'll see who remembers this, I think it was Coca-Cola, they ran an advertising campaign about Diet Coke, and they talked about one amazing calorie. Does anybody remember that? Two of you, thank you. I didn't Google it to make sure this is accurate, but, but my memory serves me not often well. But Chuck Swindoll, I remember he kind of got on a little rant about how dare Coca-Cola talk about a calorie being amazing. Because truly, sometimes, and it can be true of other words as well, we use adjectives uh, to describe things you know, that, that maybe really aren't worthy of such an adjective. So I don't know or whether if you're into Diet Coke, I you know, don't mean to offend, but maybe you, you appreciate that amazing calorie that, that gives you the flavor you like. Well, well today we are going to, as we unpack this passage and get to baptism, look at an amazing passage. And, and here it is, this passage, like the song we sing sometimes, this is amazing grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, this is amazing grace. A couple weeks ago when we started this series, when I just did a brief overview, I came to this passage and said, I think, I believe this passage really acts as a summary to the whole letter. Paul to Titus here hits the high points of God's grace. And this passage is amazing grace. And so for a few minutes this morning, as we look at Titus 2, 11 to 15, we're going to see three things. Number one, 
the appearance of the grace of God, the appearance of God's amazing grace, number two, the work of the grace of God, and then number three, the price of the grace of God, okay? The appearance, the work, and the price of the grace of God. And that's all going to get us set up for our baptism service in just a few moments. So first off, the appearance of the grace of God. Look back at verse 11, just the first few opening words, kind of the A part of Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared. Now that first word for isn't a throwaway. Really, it's what connects this passage we're in to that passage I'm skipping. So the Apostle Paul had a lot of important things to say to how God's people are to live, and that was a response to those false teachers who were living a false way, not only with their words, but how they lived. So Titus 2.1 talks about how God's people are to live. And then right here now, this word for is like a big because. Why are God's people to live in the way that Paul describes in verses 1 to 10? It's because of this amazing grace that he is going to unpack here. So that four is a connection. And again, we'll make that connection full circle, Lord willing, in the future. But look what it says here. The appearance of the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. Grace of God. Grace, of course, speaks of God's unmerited favor. If we earn it, it's not grace. But God's grace toward his people is unmerited. One writer describes it as God's beneficent disposition toward his people. It's God's favor that he bestows on men and women who are sinners, who from birth are alienated, separate from God, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 describes, who who are in darkness because of the sin that they inherit not just because they do a sin when they hit a certain age, you that are parents, it's a weird moment, right? When that cute, amazing little baby that you think is so perfect all of a sudden says, no. How do they learn that? They don't learn that. Unfortunately, it's there. As humans, what an amazing, I'll use that description, amazing thing we are. We are on the one hand made in God's image. Every person Every human being, intrinsically valuable, made in the image of God, the pinnacle of his creation. And yet, because of Adam and Eve, and I can tell you as a parent how many times with my kids over the years, we would talk about all this and they'd say, why did Adam and Eve have to do what they did? But they did, and because they did, we learn as the scriptures unfold that we are all born, separated, alienated from God in sin. So those cute babies that all of a sudden say, no, mommy, no, daddy. They don't learn that. It's there. So God has this grace that he bestows on his people, the grace of God. And notice what it says, has appeared. I mentioned the word epiphany a moment ago. Did any of you have an epiphany that we were skipping some verses? This word appeared comes from the Greek word that can be translated epiphany, to appear. The grace of God has epiphanied. And that's the first thing we learn about the amazing grace of God. It has appeared. How has it appeared? Well, it has appeared most specifically in the very unique, specific, historical appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. The grace of God has appeared, and it's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ came, his first coming. And when he came, 
That was grace in the flesh. It was, he was, he is God in the flesh, but it was God's grace in the flesh. It had appeared. Grace appeared. He had appeared. This is amazing grace. But we learn a lot more as we continue on here in verse 11, 12, and 13. Not only has the grace of God appeared first, but secondly now, the work of the grace of God. And this is the bulk of what Paul says in this section. So let's notice the work of the grace of God. So the rest of verse 11 says, this grace of God has appeared, and then look what he says, bringing salvation for all people. The first thing we learn about the work of the grace of God is that it brings salvation for all people, meaning all kinds of people. It's for all different kinds of people, young and old, different skin colors, different ethnicities. It's, it's for all kinds of people. The grace of God has appeared for all kinds of people, and it brings that salvation that is needed. It brings that salvation that is needed. That's something a lot of people in our day think much about anymore. It's kind of unpopular to talk about we as humans needing to be saved, right? Don't we just pull up the bootstraps that we're wearing and try really hard and succeed? And, and if we've had a bad childhood, well, we work really hard to, to get out of that, uh, that, that place. If we've been hurt by folks and, and, and there's been trauma, well, we work really hard and we overcome. And, and yeah, there's a place in life for, for that, but, but too many people don't realize Grace, if it's truly grace, there's no work involved. It's of God. It's of God. And that was something else I said two weeks ago. This, this letter reminds us over and over again that in the Christian life, if it's truly biblical Christianity, it's all grace. It's all grace. It's all from God. It all starts with Him. And everything we do is a response to His grace. And it begins... This grace of God that has appeared, it's epiphanied. The first work is it brings salvation for all kinds of people. But then let's keep going. Number two, verse 12. The second thing that the grace of God does, the second work of the grace of God is it trains us. You can think of it as causes us to, to, to like training for an athletic event. It's to practice discipline. Some of us like training more than others, right, in life. But, but the grace of God, it's the grace of God that trains us to practice discipline, to teach us. It trains us, to, to, it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's kind of the negative thing. And, and again, note this. It's the grace of God at work that causes us to do away with those negative things, to renounce, that is to repent from ungodly things, things that are opposed to God, what, what Paul also calls here worldly passions. In other words, things that are not of the kingdom of God, but, but are of this world. And it's the grace of God. I will say that a hundred more times. It's the grace of God that trains us, that teaches us to repent from. So even Christians that have been saved by the grace of God need to continually turn from worldly things, to turn from things that are ungodly. I've, I've said this before many times. Martin Luther, in I believe it's the first of the 95 thesis, right? The famous 95 points that he nailed on that church door in 1517, sort of the, the start of the Protestant Reformation. The first point he says is, 
The Christian life is repentance. Always repentance. We're always turning back to God because we have a propensity to constantly turn away from God, to turn toward ungodly things, worldly things. And every day we should be repenting back to God. Again, what does that? It's a work of grace. It's the grace of God, not only that brings salvation, but trains us, disciplines us, teaches us to repent, to renounce ungodly and worldly passions. Notice the next thing now is positive. Not only do we turn from negative things by the grace of God, but we positively live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But again, it's the grace of God. We aren't trying really hard to be good, moral, Christian people. Erase that thought from your mind, and it's hard. We, We are so programmed to try really hard in school. Sorry, some of you, but you still got a few more days of school, right? Finals. Right, you're trying really hard, and my kids better try really hard here at the end. So, see, that's so ingrained. Try hard in school. Try really hard in your job to do what the boss wants, to do what your job description says, so that you'll be a good employee and promote. So much of our life is about trying hard to do good things in the Christian life. Don't lose sight of it. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared for the works of the grace of God, not only to turn from ungodly and worldly things, but it's the grace of God that helps us live. And he lists here a few things. He isn't being exhaustive, but he happens to list self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. If you struggle with self-control, I know I do. And I'm not going to be too transparent with you right now on what those areas are. But if you struggle with self-control, don't try really hard to have self-control. Lean in to the grace of God that's there to train you, to equip you to be self-controlled. See, we think of sometimes the grace of God being only for salvation. We need saving grace, and we do. And our passage says that. But we also need transforming grace or training grace. We could use that phrase right here in this passage. Sustaining grace, right? It's all grace. If we are to be self-controlled, upright, godly, it's only going to be as, as we open ourselves to God's unmerited favor, His work in us, and then cooperate with that grace. And so we have a part to play, but it's always a response. It's always a response. We're to live these kind of ways. And then the next work of the grace of God, verse 13. Not not only do we try to live these self-controlled, upright lives, but also part of how we live, now verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope your eyes see that word appearing. It's another form of that same word we saw at the top of verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. It's epiphanied. When the Lord Jesus came, and the grace of God will epiphany again when Jesus comes back. And the Christians hope that we are to wait for, oh, don't we all love waiting? It's hard to wait, but that is one of the postures of God's people. 
And, and then biblically, and we don't have time to really get into this, but to wait for him means to be ready, to be looking, to be longing, to be asking for him to come. And what, is, what does Paul say about it? It's our blessed hope. Hope is not bi- biblical hope. This hope that we have that Jesus is coming back like he promised. He will return, that second appearing, that second epiphany. It's not wishful thinking. Biblical hope, this is how one writer puts it, is confident expectation that God will do as he promised. Let me say that again. Biblical hope is confident expectation that God will do as he promised. He will come as he said he would. And that's part of the work of the grace of God, teaching us to live and to wait for it, to long for it, to pray for it, to seek it, to ask for it. And there happened what I was worried about. My iPad died in the sun. So I'm going to move into the shade. My apologies if you're watching live on the screen because now I look maybe really big or you can't see me. So we will hope that the iPad will cool off and then we will have notes again. In the meantime, I will see if the Lord gives me a gift of memory for this moment. So let me get to the real Bible here that blows in the wind. So the grace of God has appeared, right? That's the the first thing we see, the appearing of God's grace. Now we're in number two, the work of the grace of God. It brings salvation for all kinds of people. It trains us, teaches us, disciplines us, not only to renounce ungodliness and worldly things, but positively the grace of God is there to train us to live a certain kind of way. And Paul describes it as a self-controlled, upright, godly life. Again, not exhaustive. And then what we just were in, verse 13, not, not only those, but also the work of the grace of God is to help us wait for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then verse 14 gets us finally to the cost or the price of the grace of God. Who, verse 14 starts, and that's referring back to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which by itself right there at the end of 13 is a remarkably big claim to the deity of Jesus Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man, a good teacher. He is God himself. And he, we're seeing now the cost of the grace of God, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Two things there that he did when he gave himself. And and that language gave himself, it's language speaking of a cross. He, He gave himself to be put up on a cross. No one took it from him. He wasn't caught off guard on that night in the garden when Judas appeared. He, he willingly gave himself, and he said as much. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom. And so Paul says that even here. He gave himself, number one, to redeem, which speaks of freeing us, See a picture of us being enslaved and needing someone to pay a ransom price. Think of any movie, TV show you've seen where someone is held hostage and there's a, 
a ransom price. If you pay this amount of money by a certain time, then this hostage will be free. Well, we, as we've already said, were born spiritually alienated, dead, separate from God, and we needed salvation. And part of how it happened, part of the nuance of it is that Jesus, by giving himself, he paid the ransom price. He redeemed us from this enslavement, so to speak, to sin. But not only did he redeem us and free us, and here Paul calls it lawlessness. In other words, speaking of how how we live. But then he says, he also gave himself to purify. So that speaks of the cleansing work, right? Not only did Jesus free us and, and make us able to be sons and daughters of God, but he, he did a work of cleansing to purify us. But notice how Paul describes it. I love this. Look how Godward this last phrase is in verse 14. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you don't belong to yourself. You have been ransomed, redeemed, purified for him. You're, you're for him. He wants you and me. He wants you. He did all this. He cleansed us so that we would be this, this people for his own possession. And then again, how he describes it here. People who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Notice again that good works come after all of this. Christian, you are made for good works. But notice where they come. Your good works are not made to be on the front end of God saving you. There's nothing, any kind of work that you can do or any person can do that merits God saying, oh yeah, that person looks, looks worthy of my grace. I'll give it. See, at that point, it's not grace. Again, let me just restate and review. The grace of God appeared. It brought salvation. It appeared in the person of Jesus. And then the grace of God worked itself out in all these different ways to bring salvation, to discipline, train us, to leave the bad, leave the evil, to pursue God, to have our hopes set on his return. All of that is the grace of God. And all of this is so that we would be a people belonging to him who are zealous for good works. And Paul doesn't describe what those good works are. He just kind of leaves it hanging. But this is in Titus, the third time he's used that phrase, good works. And he's going to use it three more times just in chapter 3. We'll see that in the weeks to come. God's people are to do things that can be described as good works. And one of those is, in fact, baptism. Baptism is, in fact, a good work. But again, it comes on this side of God's initial work of grace in our life. His saving grace, His sustaining grace, His training grace, His transforming grace, it's all grace. And so this morning, we have three folks getting baptized. Cora Lyris, Luther Ortlinghouse, and Mary Blakely Hoyer. And in just a few moments, they are going to get into the pool, and, and their baptism is going to be a good work. And we need to say that. It is. It's a wonderful work of God. It's a work of grace in their lives that, that today and, and over the last days getting ready, they are at a place where they want to take this step and do this work. 
But that work of baptism doesn't save them. This work of baptism, and, and my iPad is still asleep, so I, oh no, it's waking up. Yay for shade. Yes. I was just reading, actually, a blog literally two weeks ago, and this one pastor said, I still print paper because I'm afraid if I do the iPad thing, something's going to happen. It won't be charged or the sun, but I have 95% battery, so I know it was the sun. Not the sun, S-O-N sun, (laughs) the S-U-N. So let's talk for a few moments about baptism and this, this good work, okay? So first... Baptism is what we describe as an ordinance, okay? That is, it's ordained by God himself for his people. And we happen to hold in our church and kind of our tribe that Jesus gave two ordinances, baptism, which is our focus now, and the Lord's Supper, communion, which will be next week, first Sunday of the month. So let's talk about this ordinance of of the Lord. Now, we call it that because in Matthew 28, Right at the end, before Jesus ascended, after his death, burial, resurrection, he was alive for 40 days, doing some more teaching, meeting to over 500 people. And then, before ascending to heaven, where he is now, waiting to return, he said this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is, make Christians, make followers of me. A disciple is a follower, a learner. Make Christians, help them begin and mature in, in me. Okay, that's, and that's the main command in this verse, make disciples. And there's three ways or th- three means to that. You have to go, right, and tell people. So there's the go part, but then right in the middle, baptizing them. So that's where we call baptism an ordinance. Jesus said, this is to be part of your discipleship. As you share about me, and as people come to know me, there comes a place for them to be baptized, to, to be um, immersed, okay? And, and that leads me then to that point. Baptism is immersion in water. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says uh, this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right there, it's pretty clear that this, this picture, and that's one of the things I talked about with Cora, Luther, and Mary Blakely. And, and you can take a look at my left hand for a minute. It's the hand I do everything with these days. If, if my hand here represents one of those three that is about to be baptized, they're going to stand next to me and uh, their, their parents, some of them, in the water. And they are going to go into the water to be immersed. And it is a picture of the Lord Jesus on the cross who died and was buried, immersed, buried, baptized, if you will. The word word literally means immersed, baptized. That's what it means. And then Jesus rose on the third day, right? And that's what Paul says there in Romans, that we, as we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we've been figuratively, it's a picture, buried with him, so that we too, as Jesus rose, we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. 
And so baptism is this amazing picture of the gospel and of our, of our union with Christ. To be a Christian is to be baptized, united to the Lord Jesus. And baptism is this, this wonderful picture, this outward demonstration of what has taken place. Baptism is also a picture of the cleansing we read about in Titus. That salvation that comes, that, that redeeming and ransoming, that purifying, right? When, when God saves a person, when a person in response to the grace of God that's appeared trusts in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that, and, and, and what, what happens? Well, we are cleansed of our sin on the inside and our life begins to change. We don't become perfect. That takes two weeks. Just making sure you're still with me. It takes a lot more than two weeks unless you go to be with the Lord. It's a lifetime of, of becoming more like Jesus. It's a lifetime of living the, and experiencing the amazing grace of God in Titus, that, that grace that helps us renounce and repent and to live for him, right? But, but it's a cleansing that happens on the inside. And so baptism pictures that. Here's a dry person and they go under and they come up wet and dripping and that water represents outwardly a picture of the cleansing that happens on the inside. Now, I do want to just say uh, there are many Christians throughout history and, and still are who have other opinions about the timing of baptism and the mode, whether it can happen when people are young or whether there can be sprinkling. And I was tempted actually to sprinkle today because it's going to be a little bit of a challenge with my one arm. Uh, but, but we will make it. We will immerse, because that's our understanding here. But all that to say, God is good, and, and God's people can have kind of an intramural debate about the timing and the mode, and we, we don't need to break fellowship over people that have been baptized as, as children, as long as it's not a salvific understanding. Because what, what you're about to see, let, let's come back to Titus, it's a work of the grace of God. It's a work, a good work, it, but it doesn't do anything to save. Those three that are going to get baptized, they don't, you know, get a, a couple notches up closer to God because of their, their baptism, okay? It doesn't save them. It doesn't do anything that way, but it is a work of grace. It is a work of grace, a good work, a, a response to the ordinance of God, a response to Romans 6, 3, and 4. In fact, each of the People getting baptized are going to get a shirt that has a summary of Romans 6, 3 and 4 on it. Buried in the likeness of his death and then on the back, raised to walk in newness of life. And so they'll have a little reminder of that reality today. So it is a good work. It's a good work in response to the grace of God. It's all grace. And church, it's amazing grace. It truly is amazing grace. Now there's more we could say, but I think we want to hear from those three and enjoy their good work. And so at this time, I'm going to invite Cora and Luther and Mary Blakely along with their, their grown-up or grown-ups to, to meet Kristen, and she's going to take you up uh, the road there and uh, find a spot for you to change and, and get ready, and... Uh, and we're going to wrap up here, and we're going to sing as well uh, one more time part of that song that we learned this morning, Gratitude. As, as the Schultz family is coming up, let me just answer two questions. Why did Jesus give this ordinance of baptism? 
Well, I've already alluded to it, but first, this, this baptism, it visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. Don't miss it. I've already kind of shown you with my arm, but you're going to see it up there. The Lord Jesus on the cross, he dies and is buried, and on the third day he rose. And they are going to visibly and tangibly show that as they are immersed and then uh, come up. So it, it screams the gospel. It screams the grace of God that has appeared. But then secondly, as I said, it is a good work, but it's a, a means of grace. Not, not a grace where they earn anything, but a means of grace. Just as God's people go to the word and, and hear from God, just as God's people gather like we're doing here in corporate worship. And I hope that, that today is a means of grace in your life. I hope that you're closer to the Lord having sung, having heard the scriptures, will watch the, the young faith of these three young people. That should be a means of grace in your life. Maybe some of you that have been baptized already, you'll remember when you did that baptism and, and had that good work. So it is a means of grace. It nourishes us. It confirms the gospel in our lives. It confirms that the grace of God has appeared. And the grace of God is at work in our life not just to save us, but to sustain us and to train us to live the kind of life that God intends. This is amazing grace right here. Titus 2, 11 to 15. We're going to see amazing grace on display in a few minutes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we simply thank you for the amazing grace. These words in Titus 2 that just explode with your amazing grace. And Lord, there's so much more to be noticed and meditated on. And so may we respond accordingly this week. Maybe some of us need to go deep into this passage and chew on some things. But now, as we've gathered and we've heard, may, may we respond to you, whatever your Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. Maybe some of us have been trying really hard to make you happy, and we need to renounce that and repent of that and, and lean into the grace of God that trains us, that sustains us. And maybe there's some out here in the grove, maybe watching online, that have simply been trying to live the life they think you want them to live on their own. And they've never actually stopped and admitted that they need to be saved. They need someone to redeem them and save them and forgive them and cleanse them. And if, if your saving grace is at work, would you draw those people to yourself right now? And may they in their own spirit have the gift of faith to turn and trust in you, Lord Jesus to turn away from themselves but to you, to the cross, and surrender to you. And I pray for the three that have gone up the hill. May they not be, be scared to testify in a moment of the grace of God that's worked in their life and as they profess their faith and take this bold, brave step of good work, of a good work of baptism. We thank you that we get to witness it and support them. So now, 
We sing in response. In Jesus' name.